Since the day Elijah was born, his mom Sarah didn't feel that his breathing was typical. While in the hospital, Sarah shared her concerns with the medical staff, but they told her not to worry and that Elijah's breathing was normal. Sarah knew in her gut that something was off, and with each new diagnosis, her gut feeling became stronger and stronger. After 18 months of finding different diagnosis, Elijah finally was sent to genetics. As they were walking into the genetics appointment, the geneticist looked at Elijah and said, your son has 22Q, but I need to run all of these blood tests to confirm it. This was the beginning of Sarah and Elijah's 22Q journey. Welcome to the 22Q podcast. My name is Becky White, and today I'm so honored to have Sarah on our podcast. She's a 22Q mom and advocate. And Sarah, welcome. Please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I am a mother of an eight-year-old 22 cutie named Elijah. We're from Philadelphia, um, born and raised here. By trade, I'm technically a social worker, but I actually do insurance reviews. I'm actually the director of um, a utilization management department in a rehab in Philadelphia for drug and alcohol. Oh, wow. And how long have you been there? So for here, I've been here a little over five years, and I've been in this field for a little over 10 years. What drew you to that field? Honestly, I have no idea. I just winded up in social work, a master's in social work program one day. And Tell me a little bit about your 22Q journey and your son. So our journey, it began, I would say, somewhat normal. Um, so I was high-risk pregnancy. I have a blood clotting disorder. So I was um, referred to the high-risk team at Jefferson. Jefferson followed me my entire pregnancy up until I was seven months pregnant. I was undergoing multiple testing, multiple ultrasounds. There was no indication anything was wrong. At seven months, I was actually discharged from the high-risk team to the regular OBGYN team because they said I was healthier than some other regular OBGYN patients and didn't feel that I needed to be followed by high-risk anymore. I delivered at 39.4 weeks. Um, according to Jefferson's due date, my original due date from the first hospital, I was actually three days late. So I just said he was right in the middle of both two dates I gave. Yeah. After that, that day, he had like this weird breathing and I was just told like, oh, I was just a new mom. It was nothing to worry about that all babies need that noise. And it actually says on my paperwork from the hospital that um, mom was worried and we ensured her it was just new mom worries. What was like the sound? Well, now I, it's hard for me to describe now like what exactly was because I know what it is now. But it was almost like he just, he was loud, noisy breathing. To me, right away, I knew something was wrong. Mm -hmm. But they literally just discharged me and was like, yep, you're fine. He's fine. Go home. I would say about day eight, we winded up in the ER for the first time. Wasn't anything too major, but he winded up having a blocked tear duct. Mm. So we wind up getting admitted. And then we were there for like a day or two. And then we went home. He failed his newborn hearing screening at birth. So we were referred multiple times to get the newborn hearing screen. I think we winded up getting it done 11 times over the next year. Between that and by the time he was six months old, he was hospitalized six times with bronchiolitis. But remember, there was nothing wrong with his breathing. Wow. So I had, we were inpatient one time and the doctor covering at the hospital said that he didn't warrant a pulmonary consult. 
So my dad was in the room at the time. I left Eli with my dad. I went down to their outpatient clinic. They told me it was two and a half months to get an appointment. I called CHOP. CHOP was like three months to get an appointment. I was like, this is not right. Something's not right. I called his pediatrician and his pediatrician was like, if I don't call you back today, I'll call you tomorrow. The next day he called me back and had me an appointment with the head of um, pulmonary at DuPont. And within a week we had a diagnosis that something actually was wrong with his breathing. Wow. And that's when we first got diagnosed tracheomalacia. Okay. And what is that for those that have never heard of that? So before? his airway, basically the trachea part of his airway is floppy and it shouldn't be as floppy. So it closes more than it should. Um, And that's basically ultimately what winded up for him being admitted to the hospital so much was anytime he gets a minor cold, his airway couldn't handle it. And right. what would have been like the sniffles to somebody winded up him in needing oxygen. Right. So you figured that piece out. You figured out the airway. What was the next step? We also started, so he got diagnosed with torticollis and he was in OT and PT. And we wound up seeing an um, orthopedic down at DuPont and he was having all these spine abnormalities. So he had, at the time, his um, C4 vertebrae was like a wedge. It wasn't like a full vertebrae. Oh. And then x-rays were showing up that he had some mild scoliosis and that his curve at the bottom of his tailbone was the wrong way too. So at the same time, he wasn't losing the left side of his body. So we referred to neurology. Okay. And neurology had ordered a MRI of the brain and his orthopedic got word that we were doing the MRI of the brain. He said, well, I want an MRI of the whole spine. So when they were doing that, we winded up getting that. And here they winded up finding when they did the MRI of the whole spine that he had a tethered cord. So then from there, the orthopedic was actually like, I really think it's time to see genetics. Like there's a lot of spine abnormalities and all these return infections. There's definitely something I feel that's going on. It took a month. I think it almost took us a year to actually get in with genetics. And when I tell you, I walked in this lady's office and she was like, your son has 22Q, but I need to run all these blood work to confirm that. And I was like, wait, how do you know he has 22Q? And now this time I've never heard of this. Right. This lady looked at him and knew right away that he had 22Q. Right when you walked in the door. Right in the door. Wow. Was it his facial features or just She said it was chart? his, the wet, this, how his ears sat, how his nose sat, how his eyes sat. All typical 22Q features that I'm aware of now, but at the time I was not aware. How old was he at the time? So he was probably about 17 months because he was, eight, I remember when he was 18 months when I got the official diagnosis. So you had 18 months of health not concerns. What was going on? Yeah. What was that first year like? It was crazy. Honestly, we were at, um, I, I don't go to this hospital anymore, but the hospital we originally started at. We, he was getting admitted, discharged him the next day, and I would be right back in the hospital the same day, sometimes either that same day or the next day. It was getting really frustrating. And at the time, like, so I wasn't even going to any of their outpatient clinics anymore. I was going to DuPont for the outpatient clinics. And then after we got the diagnosis, I found out about the 22Q and U Center at CHOP. So I started slowly switching stuff over to CHOP, but I wasn't quite there yet. And then I was kind of like, you know what? Chop's only really this much further of a drive. Why am I even attempting to go to this hospital anymore? And when I went to Chop, I started to feel like they started to actually listen to me. And if I felt he wasn't ready to leave, they would actually listen to me. Mm -hmm. And from there, like we just, 
I met a doctor there that he just came into our life at the right time. I had a bad experience with a different pulmonologist there. And I tried to switch to pulmonology there. And it was just a really bad experience. And he came into our life. And I mean, he really, till this day, I tell him all the time, like made such a difference. Because at the time we met him, Eli was admitted earlier in the week for three days, got sent home. And within three days, we were back again. Mm -hmm. And after he got us that week, we went nine months with no admission. Wow. He changed all his meds. Like he knew what actually was going on. Um, and all these people, like they didn't seem to know that a butyrol can actually make someone's airway worse that has Malaysia. So all this time they kept giving him a butyrol without even realizing that it was actually making him work. Well, I'm glad you found that doctor. Would you mind sharing his name? Um, Dr. Pichon, who's part of the airway clinic at CHOP. Nice. And is he part of the 22Q clinic there? Um, I don't know if he's specifically part of the 22Q clinic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure he sees many of these because for at one point he was the only pulmonologist in the airway clinic. Okay. There is another one in there now, but. Well, I'm glad that you found him because it takes so long sometimes to find that right doctor. After all of that, and once you get that diagnosis, what was it like for you? It was just, it was crazy because leading up to that, it was still going to this other hospital at the time. They started suspecting some things were going on too, but they were running these random tests and that didn't even make sense. And sometimes running them even without my consent or running the wrong test. And then once I got the diagnosis, I kind of freaked myself out. I went on Google and what I recommend to all parents now is stay off of Google. My mind went all over. I went to the extremes and probably for the next year or two, things got very overwhelming. It was appointment after appointment, specialist after specialist, therapy after therapy. And I still joke to this day. I feel like every time I go to a doctor, I come home with a new diagnosis. I hear you. Our kiddos are those kiddos that the doctor comes in the room and says, this is very rare. He, they probably don't have it. So don't worry about it. And then you just roll your eyes and you're like, you haven't met my kid yet. Yep. <laughs> not our luck yet. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, what is he like now as an eight-year-old? He is an eight-year-old going on 90. Yeah. I tell him all the time. He's a 90 year old man. He just, he has such a strong personality on him. You, when you meet him, you love him. Yeah. He's just like, he wins you over. He has to always tell you a thousand stories. For the Mm -hmm. most part, he's happy. He's always wanting to talk to you. He's always wanting to tell some type of story to you, something he did. So he sounds like a love. I'm a big personality ball. Like he has such a strong personality on him. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to love him. Like he's very active. Like he loves playing sports. So he does karate, ice hockey. He actually plays for a special needs ice hockey team. Nice. It's all kids with different um, abilities, whether it's cognitive, physical, developmental. And he's really found a love for ice hockey. Um, Duffy actually had me sign him up for another version of ice hockey, but it's more like a skills version right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Because he just loves to be on the ice. Yeah. But compared to other kids, he's not like the greatest, like he's not the sharpest moves. He's not the fastest, but he tries on his own ability. Yeah. Yeah. And if you had to use one word to describe him, what would you use? I would say a big ball of personality, but that's more than one word, but (laughs) 
unique. I would say unique. Unique. And what does he like? Like, what is his, what is his like go-to thing that he loves? He absolutely loves trains. He <gasps> loves. My son does too. <laughs> he was obsessed. And I mean, I can, he can sit there and tell you every character in Thomas and he'll be talking about them. Like you should know them. And I'm like, Eli, not everybody knows this. Nope. I don't even know what you're talking about. But he will be like, oh, I need to delay from Europe. And I'm like, what? That and um, the solar system. He is obsessed with the solar system. And he can tell you everything about stars. Last night, he was out there with his star tracker looking for something, some certain star. Nice. Like, I say with him, like, he learns so much off of watching his own YouTube video, like, own YouTube videos if he has a catchy tune to it, a catchy song to it, like... He will get it like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The repetition and memorization is really impressive. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and what, you know, tell me about some of the struggles you faced over the past eight years and how you've overcome them. Um, so I, I would say a lot of the struggles are getting everybody acclimated to his care. Like not everybody knows what 22Q is and not everybody knows how to deal with it. I'm lucky enough to have CHOP so close near to me. It's figuring out what the right services for him are needed and not even just in the medical field, in the school field, at home. It's figuring out all these things and getting everybody on the same boat. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of been, I would say getting him services in school has probably been one of my biggest challenges. When he first aged out of like what they call around here is earlier intervention, he wasn't right, quite ready for a pre-K program, but he wasn't meeting criteria for like a special needs program. So they winded up putting him in what's called a reverse mainstream. We did that program for two years. And then I was at the point where I'm like, he's really not getting much more out of this program to do it three years in a row. So that's kind of like where I kind of had to make the the switch of do I put him in kindergarten now or do I not? And I winded up just putting him in kindergarten. And then as we all know, all hell broke out that year. What was so challenging about kindergarten for him? We were making all this progress and then dead stop to everything. I would say, honestly, this is probably the first year that yes, he was back in school last year, but this year is probably the first like most normal year they have back to date. So right now it's really trying to get him caught up to where he is because yes, he's academically behind mm-hmm. and how much of that is the pandemic and how much of that is the 22 Q. Right. But for him, sometimes doesn't test as well as he actually knows. So for him, if he doesn't want to do that test, if he doesn't want to do that assignment, he's not going to do it. And he'll just sit there and say four plus four is eight just to get the answer done and go away. Even though he knows four plus two is six. Mm-hmm. So he will score badly on tests because gotcha. he doesn't want to do them. So in order for him to just get done, he'll just hurry up, write any answer just to get done. Yeah. So a lot of motivation and switching from undesired tasks is a challenge for him. Mm-hmm. And that's even with some of the testing I actually had his IEP meeting last week. And that's one of the things we were trying to talk about is like strategies to kind of break up some of these because we're coming into a year where standardized testing is happening this year they will have him in a separate room like he won't be in a room with his regular class he'll be in with other kids that might need to go at a slower pace this year Mm -hmm. but again it's like how much can they break it up because his attention span is only so so much he can give at a time 
Right. And do you know if there's other students that have to get the standardized testing broken up as well? Yeah, she said there'd be other kids in this um, in the room with him. So the school he goes to, there's 1,200 kids and it's K through five. So wow. they actually have two autistic support classrooms in the um, building too. And mm-hmm. there's actually another kid with 22 Q in the building. Wow. Has he, have you met the parents? I have not met the parents, but I met the kid quite a few times. Wow. What grade are they in? He should be in first grade this year. Oh my gosh. Wow. I I said, you guys don't understand how rare this is to have two kids in the same. Yes. And, and they've been pretty open. So his school actually in kindergarten um, actually started doing a 22 Q awareness dress down day. The principal was right on board with it and they've been doing it every year since, except for when we were in the pandemic, obviously, but yeah. So we've been doing uh, awareness days. That's wonderful. I love that. So was that brought on by you or one of the teachers? Um, I asked for it when he was in kindergarten and then the homeschool president at the time brought it up to the staff, uh, to the principal and he agreed to do it. I love it. And then that year I knew they were on board because he said to me, he would like me to grow it every year. Yeah. Good. And with the dress down day and with all of that, how does, does your son like it? Does he not like he the does. attention? No, he does. Mm-hmm. He knows, like, I've never once hid from him that he has 22Q. I make him aware that, yes, he is a little bit different than other kids. And that's not something to be ashamed of. That's something that he should embrace and know that he may not be able to handle something as well as somebody else or handle something different than somebody else. Because I don't want him to feel that, like, there's something wrong with him, but I want him to be aware that he may have other struggles that other kids may not, and he may react different than other kids. Mm-hmm. For him in school, one of the biggest things is fire alarms. He perseverates about fire alarms. He knows that at the beginning of every month, there's a fire drill coming. So he get, tries to talk me out of sending him to school. He tries to make himself sick um, before Yes, two years ago, when we first started going back in the pandemic, he would literally, we would get to the schoolyard and he would vomit all over the schoolyard because he was so scared of walking in the building and the fire alarm going off. But my son is the exact same way, exact same way. He will ask profusely. Um, he'll wake up in the middle of the night and say, is there going to be a fire alarm tomorrow? Um, he has to have his headphones near him mm-hmm. in case there is. Yep. I hear you. crazy because like, he will sit there and make the loudest noises with his iPad and whatever noises, but he cannot, he has to be the one to initiate the loud sounds. He can't be, it can't be just randomly sprung on him. Yeah. For my son, it's it's also that not knowing where it's coming from, not only the piece of not knowing when it's coming, but like not knowing where it's coming from. Yeah. We were at like a restaurant and they, you order first pay and then they, they call your number on a loudspeaker and he couldn't take the loudspeaker saying order number 13, order number 12. Cause he didn't know when it was going to happen. Yeah. And it was so hard to explain to our family and friends why he was screaming and why he was putting his hands on his ears. And I was, tra- I was doing everything. I was trying to calm him down. And I don't know about you, like, how has it been with family and friends and tr- trying to educate them? What has that been like for you? I mean, for the most part, it's been okay. I have some special needs kids in my family already, so it's not like it's a new thing to people, but it's hard because people don't know what 22Q is, and he doesn't have that autism diagnosis, but he does have some autism traits, so I try to explain to to people the best that I can, like, 
even though he may not be autistic, he still has some traits and he still has a lot of sensory issues. That's where the trick is too. Some people may not understand. They're like, well, he's sitting there making all these sounds. He's playing all these loud horns. He's doing this. I said, but he's initiating it. He knows it's coming. He knows what to expect. With the fire drill and stuff, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody raises their voice, he automatically runs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, what are the struggles that your family and friends may not see as a parent of a 22Q kiddo? I'm pretty much an open book and I talk a lot about his journey on Facebook, but I would say they really probably don't see the struggles every day of, I can't just get up and walk out the door. I have to get up and give him his meds. I have to get up and make sure he's dressed because he can't dress himself yet either. Um, I got to get up and make sure he's washed and walking out the door with him. If he doesn't want to walk out that door, it's a struggle. He is the type of kid that he has his mind made up on doing what he wants to do then he's going to fight you every inch of the way. So there's a lot of bribing, a lot of manipulating that has to happen in order just to get him out the door. And then usually once he's in school, they would tell me like once he's in school, within a half hour, he usually calms down and he is fine there the rest of the day. It depends on who's there. Sometimes he'll try and use his medical to his advantage to get out of school if he doesn't want to do it. But the nurse caught on awfully quick. Oh, yes. <laughs> they're smart <laughs> he tries oh yeah we'll even have these stories like I've had at times where the teacher has had to not this year but prior has had to text me or call me I'm like are you up today at two o'clock you told me you had an appointment and this is what that I'm like no not at all like he's just fibbing my son not- does the same thing <laughs> yeah and it happens quite a few times like he's so convincing Oh my gosh. And she knew I happened to be in the school. So she walked him over to me. (laughs) And that's what I say. Like testing for him doesn't always show how smart he actually is because he knows it, but it's hard because it's his attention and his motivation. Like if they're both not there, you're going to get bad scores. So that even like when we were testing to go into kindergarten, I had to tell the psychologist that was testing him. I'm like, that's not how he normally is. And then when she went back the second time, she was like, she agreed to go back a second time and see him. He was a completely different kid. She's like, I see what you mean now. I said, he really has to be motivated in order to want to actually do it in order for you to actually get whether to engage, whether he actually knows it or not. What has been some of those motivations for him that has worked? He's definitely a toy motivator. Like we try stickers, we try candy, we try all different things, but for him, it only lasts for so long and then he's over. He's like, all right, I don't really care about that anymore. I'm just going to do this. I, it, it's impossible to really look to the future because it's just like every time I feel that like we get settled down and we start settling down, something new comes up, some other um, diagnosis pops up. Like even with, so I know we only really talk about his airway a little bit, but he's got a slew of other medical problems. So it's kind of like, so with his airway is probably one of the biggest ones. He winded up not only getting diagnosed with the tracheal malaysia, but he winded up with bronco and like ringo malaysia diagnosed later on. So he's winded up having a submucous cleft palate repair. Um, so he has followed in VPI clinic. Um, and then hopefully we won't need the other, the VPI surgery, but only time will tell with that. And when I tell people that they're like, are you serious? I'm like, yes, he didn't start talking until he was four. And when I kid you, he does not shut up now. He, I, I will say, Eli, like, take a breath. Take a <laughs> you have to, like, 
Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so speech so, was a really big thing for him. And it's still like we're in speech in school, we're in speech at CHOP. That's one of the we're constantly in and out of OT and PT. So he's kind of been in PT and OT since he was a couple months old. And then speech probably started when he was about 18 months old, right after he got the diagnosis. They said, Well, we know that speech is a delay with this, so let's just start working with him now. So I didn't really have to wait until he was two to get it on board. Mm-hmm. Cardiology-wise, he pretty much when he was about, I guess, 16 months old, he got sick with RSV, winded up in the ICU for about two weeks. And while he was there, he started throwing PVCs, and they found out that he had two holes in his heart. One of them was a PFO, which spontaneously closed, and the other was a PDA, which is still minuscule open, but... They say that it's not so much to worry about and it shouldn't cause problems. As he grows older, his murmur is getting stronger and stronger. And then he had a history of a left um, enlarged left ventricle, which went back to normal size, but now he just had a CAT scan two weeks ago and the results show that it's mildly enlarged again. So now I'm kind of worrying about that again. Yeah. What, co- what could cause that to happen? They didn't know what caused it the first time. So I'm still waiting for somebody to call me back because I just got the results. So, right. And I only seen them through my chop. So I'm only reading the report versus actually talking to the doctor right now. Right. And um, you had mentioned in the hospital for his newborn hearing, he had failed. What happened with his hearing? So they believe, so he winded up eventually getting an ABR done sedatively and winded up passing. So they feel that it's something to do with the structure of his ears. He gets checked every six months for a hearing. The last two or three have been coming up borderline normal with some concern for some con- con- um, conductive hearing loss, but otherwise they're like normal. So he he's followed right now and they're just watching to make sure there's no changes. But the funny part is I actually say he can hear better without the tubes because he's had seven sets of tubes. In his life, and ever since the last set fell out, he actually seems to me to hear better. Really? Yes, it's weird. You would think it was the opposite, but yeah, isn't that bizarre? Wow. He had his first surgery when he was two months old. They did the tubes, and he had a left angle hernia repair the same day. And then from there, he's also had so we talked about the submucous cleft. He's had a detethering, mm-hmm. he's had his tonsils and adenoids out. But his adenoids actually grew back. I found out later on that they only cut like a piece of them off. They kind of just shaved them. And because they knew he had 22Q, they saved some of the adenoids in case they needed it for a VPI. But never told me that. So about a year and almost two years after the surgery, someone was like, oh, his adenoids. Said, I took him to the ER and they said something about his adenoids. I'm like, his adenoids? I'm like, they cut them out. They're like, well, we see them. Whoa. So they only took a piece of them off. Yeah, so they, not they kind the of like thing. gave them down versus cutting them completely out. Is that due to the recovery time? It's something to do with the VPI and the insufficiency in there that they knew that he may need the tissue. Okay. And didn't cut it out all the way, but didn't tell me. So I didn't know until I asked and I'm like, well, why are they back? Yeah. So did he have to go back and get them removed fully? No, right now they're just watching it because all of a sudden this year they were a little enlarged, but they weren't enlarged enough to actually do anything right now. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of just watching them now. We actually go back next month to ENT to kind of get a recheck. So that's pretty much it for ENT though. And then 
for in chronology, they kind of watch because his calcium level drops here and there, but mainly like after something. So anytime he's hospitalized or after surgery, they check all his levels. For neurology, he does have a history of febrile seizures. Um, and it's been okay pretty much in the last couple of years. You see me, I don't know if you heard me, I'm knocking on wood. They're still watching that because they're not convinced that he won't ever have them again. So he does have like a spot on his brain that puts him at an increased risk for seizures. Okay. GI, GI is his other big issues. So um, he has really severe GERD and then gastroparesis. So his stomach's not emptying. So not only is the anxiety causing him to vomit, his stomach's also causing him to vomit because it's not emptying fast enough. So right. we're kind of in a a weird place right now where they're not really sure what to do. Um, we switched some meds and it seemed to help a little bit, but it's not going away completely. So it's really just trying to figure out, like they think the gastroparesis part of it is under control, but not the reflux part of it. So we kind of started coming off some of the gastroparesis meds and up the reflux meds, but he's kind of like maxed out on a lot of the meds. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard right now for that. I think that's really like his main big issues. That's a lot. Every single one is a doctor's appointment. Every single one has ultrasounds or x-rays or blood work or something else attached Just to right it. And you got the urologist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we get his kidneys checked once a year. They do um, the ultrasound to make sure his kidneys are okay. He does have hypospadias, but we didn't correct it because at the time he was so sick and it was just so much going on that it was, it was hard to put him under anesthesia. So they weren't really worried about it. Mm -hmm. um, and then in regards to them working with neurosurgery, because of the tether cord, we have some potty issues, but a lot of it now is behavioral. So since they did the surgery, he has gained feelings that he needs to feel, but it's the behavior was already there because it was almost six years of, not being able to feel. So now it's retraining him to actually, hey, I have this feeling I need to go to the bathroom. Right. He does a lot better at school with it than at home. Mm -hmm. Um, School, like we don't put him in pull-ups at all. Mm -hmm. He goes in straight underwear and he can pretty much make it through the entire day. I think he's only had like two accidents the entire year, mm -hmm. but they're on a stricter schedule. And I think he's more bound to follow this schedule because he wants to get out of whatever activity they're doing as well. Right. At home, it's like, I come home, I'm letting loose. I'm going, he puts himself right on a pull up, whether you tell him no, yes, I'm trying to break that. And mm -hmm. we've been working with a potty specialist with that too. Like at CHOP, they have the um, potty behavioral specialist. Right. I feel like I'm talking all over the place. Sorry. That's fine. No, it's fine. You're sharing your son. This is... This is your son. This is what it's like. And it, it is all over the place, isn't it? It's, it's so all over the place. That's them. And they're beautiful in their own way. And, you know, the potty training piece, it's it's hard. I did want to ask you too, you know, what advice do you have for new parents listening that may have just gotten their diagnosis? Stay away from Google. Stay away from Google. You're not the first and you're not the last to ever say that. Um, definitely um, finding a support group. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the Facebook groups have helped me, especially when I wasn't ready to come out with the diagnosis at first. Like when I first got it, I wouldn't really tell anybody because I didn't really know what was going on, what to expect. Like I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it. Right. 
I happen to be, I play, I play softball and I happen to be at a game and I just, something I guess looked off for me. And one of the girls turned to me and they're like, what's wrong? And I just finally opened up and told her. And she said, oh, well, somebody I work with, her daughter has 22 Q. Wow. And then from there, like, I kind of just, I reached out to her and then I started talking to her. And at the time she was a real big advocate in the community for it. Mm-hmm. And then it's weird from there. Um, somebody I actually graduated high school with, her daughter has 22Q duplication and I was just in her wedding last year. And somebody else I went to school with in college, like she, we were at some event together and her friend walked by and here, her son has 22Q duplication too. That's a so lot of connections. Weird. Yes. It was, it's weird to like how I'm finding these connections in random places. Yeah. I don't have any personally, like that's, that's great. And once you found those other people that, that had a child with 22 Q, how'd that make you feel? It made me, I, mean, I, I want to say relief, but it gave me like a sense of like community and it gave me like other parents knew what I was going through because a lot of people can like, Oh, you're such a great mom. You like, I feel bad for you. I feel bad for Eli, but like, it's, it's easier for somebody that's actually going through it to know what it's like and to say something to, than it is for, to say to a parent that has a healthy child because it's it's different there's a lot of things like you have to worry about as a parent with 22q like so my son is going away with his hockey team to a tournament up in up in new york and here's me googling where's the closest hospital in case something happens normal parents don't have to worry about that yeah it's this isolating world that you're thinking about and worrying about other things that other parents have no idea or not even on their radar I found that finding the 22Q Family Foundation and finding a community of moms that also had these experiences of knowing what it's like to stay up all night listening to your kid breathe, knowing what it's like to, you know, big one for me. Yeah, knowing what it's like to have to make sure you have the right medications, or if a a storm is coming, make sure you have all the things that you need for the next couple days um, that your child needs and it's a different world that we live in and there's a different level of grief and a different level of joy too. You definitely learn to appreciate the smaller victories and yeah, like tasks, like what might not be so celebrated by somebody else, but like is so celebrated by us because it may have took Elijah forever to, to just even be able to write his name. Like when he first started kindergarten, he would write an easy in size of the entire paper. And now it's almost like when I just looked at it, it's almost there. It's almost on one line inside the lines. So like for him to do that, it took a lot of work and a lot of motivation and a lot of redoing and redoing and redoing. And I would say too, like I definitely, um, not only with the 22 family foundation, like there was at least two more for me that I found that have been helpful too. So I found like the 22Q family foundation and then 22 cuties and then the international 22Q foundation have kind of all been like, they all have their own purpose in the 22Q um, community. And they each kind of like focus on different things. Right. And especially a lot of the Facebook groups. Yeah, definitely. Getting to talk to other moms that had their children 30 years ago. It's I their lives were so isolating because they didn't have Mm -hmm. Facebook. They didn't have social media. It was just them and their journey, unless someone in their hospital also had 22Q. So I'm so grateful for social media and being able to connect like this. You and I probably never would have met if (laughs) if we didn't have podcasts. 
I know. So, and then it's crazy too, because even like back then, probably 30 years ago, it wasn't all under the 22Q umbrella too. So, yeah. And, you know, as we're closing up, I just wanted to ask you too, you know, when you got that diagnosis, you walked into the, into that geneticist office and she looked at your son and said, oh, he has 22Q. If you could go back in time to that moment, what would you say to yourself? Breathe that everything's going to be okay. And to just take everything one day at a time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if your son ever listens to this, what do you want him to know? That I love him and that I strive every day to make sure he has the best possible outcomes. Beautiful. Thank you so much. That's my baby. And he is so lucky to have you. You sound like an amazing mom and just keep going, mama. It's a hard journey, but we're here for you and you're not alone in it. I promise you. It's an, it's an evolving journey and it's something that is always going to change as you grow, as they grow, as they get stronger. So their bodies are always going to change and the journey is always going to be different. So it's, that's why I said, it's kind of hard to look towards that future per se. Like, yes, I'm working towards goals in the future, but it's kind of just addressing the here and now to make sure that future goals are obtainable. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that they're happy and healthy as possible yes. and happy, helping and thriving. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing Elijah with me. He is such an amazing guy and he is so lucky to have you as his mom. Thank you again. And to all of our listeners, please don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast to help raise awareness for 22Q. And if you'd like to reach me, you can contact me at 22qpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, concerns, or if you're interested on being on this podcast. And never forget, 22Q family, that you are not alone.